Hello, I'm Emma Rice, the Artistic Director of Wise Children, and you're listening to Wise Children's Lockdown. Our Lockdown Project is about us finding ways of staying close to each other. On this show, I call up an old friend, play some records, and most importantly, get to chat and reminisce. Come and join us for Tea and Biscuits. Hello and welcome to Tea and Biscuits. And today we're doing part two of a Tea and Biscuits that we've already done. I'm speaking again to Mr. Mike Shepherd. Hi, Mike. Hello. <laughs> um, can I apologise just in case to your listeners? But um, it's rather brilliant. I'm here at the Barnes and it's surrounded by National Trust land and they've made a commitment rather brilliantly to not graze their land and keep generating methane um, but to, to hand it over to people and conservation so I'm talking about something that we've talked about quite a lot uh, where we plant an orchard and we have a storytelling orchard and we do all sorts of things there but meanwhile they've let it go wild and it's the most beautiful wild grassy meadow but of course <laughs> <laughs> it's a killer for the old hay fever. So, <laughs> listeners, please, please forgive me if I keep sniffing. <laughs> There's he sniffing. I look forward to that. I'm, a, I'm, I'm intimately acquainted with your hay fever. You are, and and uh, it's in my DNA somewhere. I, I had a marvelous um, auntie Mabel and uncle Harry, um, who, when they retired, they they decided they would go around old people's homes doing uh, entertainment <laughs> songs from the shows etc but my auntie Mabel would yeah M- Michael now how are you and she just sniffed the whole time it was extraordinary so I've picked that up from her do you remember once you had a sneezing fit at my mum and dad's and I sent you upstairs <laughs> yeah <laughs> After, yeah no auntie it was, it was unbearable no, I just have to lie down in the dark, and it's uh, and, and that's nice. It's, it, it forces me to lie down in the dark. But now I, I've been do- lying down in the dark, even when I'm not having a sneezing fit. So perhaps I need to, um, yeah. I think you've come out into question the lo- about how your lockdown's going. But today is because we've got so much to talk about, and I thought I wanted to talk today a little about about two shows that really define my life as an artist. Um, and I think have played a big part in yours as well, which is The Red Shoes and Tristan and Isolt. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, then. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> <All right. blood. laughs> Did you not like the long pauses there? For... <laughs> right. I thought, I thought that I'd like to talk about so Go on, then. <laughs> let's kick off with the defining bit of music from Red Shoes, which is the Catechurian Waltz, which we both chose today. Here it is.
is that's the piece of music I cannot listen to without swaying and and without feeling all the emotions of that show built oh, up in me. Yeah, such a such a oh such a big emotional thing, particularly now because we we travelled the world and we I remember we opened that show at the Sturt Centre. Do you remember? Kind of grim <laughs> on Bobman Moor, chilly with a handful of people sort of shaking their heads my god what's happened to me i now and i remember i remember all our office staff you know kind of couldn't find a good word to say about it could they um <laughs> and and it was oh it was so important and so wonderful um at, at, at the time we made the red shoes i i, I can't i've I, Believe it or not, after 40 years, I've just redone my job description. I thought, why am I doing this? I was always happiest when I didn't have a job description. But I, I think at one point, I was joint artistic director with Bill Mitchell. And then fairly quickly, I went, well, I'm I'm on stage all the time. I'm touring. I'm, I'm doing this, that and that. Being an artistic director, I'm kind of making snap judgments that are ill-informed. I'll hand over to the brilliant informed brain of Bill Mitchell but it, it was you, you you'd been with us for, for a while uh, and were quite clearly really really brilliant and um, it Red Shoes wasn't the first show you directed for us but I can remember Bill Mitchell saying how brilliant you were and then I, I think he used the word bossy he went she's so bossy she's she we, she's got a direct she's got to direct <laughs> and the first show you did was a version a jacobean tragedy of the uh the changeling uh where i played the flores and you played oh what was her name beatrice essential joanna. character beatrice beatrice joanna and Luis Santiago was there, and John Sermon was there, and Rod Dixon, who runs Red Ladder, was there. And it, it, it was an extraordinary piece of work. And it, it came at a time when um, we, we, we were thinking we had to shake things up. We, we were ending up playing to outdoor audiences and beautiful um, National Trust grounds like Trilisic and uh, and quite a well-to-do audience with their 2.5 kids and their 4.4 vehicles and fancy, I mean dead fancy picnics coming to see the delightful knee-high theatre that were a bit different and then we did that brilliant Jacobean tragedy that was where we both en ended up stabbing each other to death <laughs> and I can remember those those sort of family audiences throwing their hands up and oh my god what's happened now and beating a hasty retreat so that was the first show you did uh, and and then um, well you you must tell me when Bill asked Bill asked you what do you want to direct what did you say well, I remember it because I had directed The Itch, which is what we called The Changeling. And because I'd never thought I was going to be a director, I didn't have that stack of plays that, you know, would-be directors have. I, I hadn't done that. So I'd, I'd created The Itch and it had, well, I don't know whether it had gone well or not. We didn't get any reviews, did we? We don't know. 
but we we were onto something. You could feel the energy in the company, and the fizz between you, me, and Bill. That um, that triangle was was powerful. And then Bill just said, "Well, what are you going to do next?" Which I hadn't planned for that question. And I remember opening my mouth and saying, "I'd like to do the red shoes." And you and Bill going, "Great, let's do the red shoes." And I promise you, I had never thought about it before in my life at that moment. And I had I hadn't ever seen the film. And I don't believe I'd ever read the story, but that cannot be true because somewhere the red shoes must have been in my psyche because I can remember leaving that meeting thinking, bloody hell, I wonder what I've just got myself into. I watched the film, was the first thing I did, the amazing Paul and Pressburger film and thought, my God, this is about ballet and um, orchestras and that's the antithesis of knee high. This is a disaster. And I actually went to the library and found the Hans Christian Andersen version of The Red Shoes. And I read it and I I sort of knocked myself out with how relevant this folk tale was to me. And that I just left my very happy marriage um, to, to run away with you and with the circus and this irresistible surge of energy that I felt creative energy that was being released by Nehi in this wild bit of Cornwall and The Red Shoes was about this irresistible force, the irresistible force of dance but it was freedom as well and it was the expression for her to be herself and um, how she was compelled to dance and the cost of the dance which I think I was really feeling in myself at the time um, but then she died at the end and I started reading all the different versions and she either went into servitude or went to heaven. And I can remember thinking, sod that. I am not going to kill this girl or make her a servant. I'm going to give her a, a future. And that was where this version of The Red Shoes was born. I always knew that there was going to be a big fight at the end and she was going to she was gonna win her freedom back. So there were some big things that I knew I wanted, but it was raw and I think it was raw for all of us. And my memory is I knew that I wanted you all in vest and underpants. I wanted you to all feel vulnerable. And I wanted you to all to shave your hair off, which you all did. Even Beck Appleby eventually, who had the longest, most beautiful hair. But we were, we were really brave and everybody really committed to it. So that's what I remember is it was a moment of pure, raw, personal instinct. And, and that is such a powerful thing and 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 that in its turn really taught me something i can remember um you saying and 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 it and it was certainly true with the red shoes that stories find you and um i'm going to make a kind of slightly crass generalization uh, gendered generalization but i'd certainly um as someone who had directed um, and observed other male directors, we, we kind of have, oh, that would be a good idea. Yeah, that'd be a great idea. And then, and then I think yourself and other women directors I've observed um, make more powerful, meaningful, important work because it is deeply personal and because you trust stories to find you. Um, and. I've I've since learned from that, and much of the work that I've done, uh, I've I've kind of allowed that to seep in rather than having a good idea. I, I kind of did it a little bit. I remember that there was a little show called Fish Boy that was based on a, a Charles Causley story, um, and um, 
I, I, it was a, it was parents who had this strange, strange, marvelous boy that all they wanted was for him to fit in and and and, and be with the other children. And actually, he turned into a fish, unluckily for them. Um, but I kind of that that story nagged at me, and I did it in various forms. I actually did it in a in a swimming pool in a in Churro High School for girls. And and you go, what? Why is that? scratching at me like an itch instantly the itch that you mentioned earlier was a brilliant show think back at it it was brilliant i don't care whether we got reviews or not but anyway yes spanning forward to fish boy and i realized that was because i spent part of my life in 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 a marriage um with sammy the marvelous sammy de Corsi, who um he's a downs chap uh, and he was absolutely part of part of this community, and that's all we wanted. And it was such a shame when it was deemed that he had to go to a special school. So th- that was the reason I realised that I wanted to tell that story. But I think those stories are, are really important um, because they are personal. And they they do they. It's funny that my first show was called The Itch because it's what I talk about. It's the itch, isn't it? It's the itch of something that matters. And you mm. have to listen because, like, you know, the head can come up with lots of ideas, but they have nothing to yeah. anchor on. And when you know why you're telling a story, or at least the 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 the, the emotional landscape that that story is existing in, the decisions will tell themselves. Let's listen to a little and, bit. Oh, go on. Yeah, it's, it's the difference between the doing self and the telling self, isn't it? And of course, yes. you need a bit of telling self because that is the head, yeah. but it's the doing self. And, I, and I've recently, as we've been revisiting our values, had to justify using the word instinct. And it was suggested I changed it to intuition. But intuition is a bit, it's a bit sixth sense. It's a bit in the head. And instinct is to do with the doing self. And that will lead you somewhere you didn't know you were going brilliant i'm thinking about that now let's listen to another bit of offenbach because the red shoes was all about dancing it was very dark our our production was very dark and we went to a really dark place personally all of us that were involved in making that show but we also danced very lightly in our cornish clogs and here's a little bit of the polka Thank you. 
That's the polka from Offenbach's Gaiety Parisienne. Now, I look back at the Red Shoes and I, I marvel slightly at how much sense it made because I threw a lot of ideas into that world. We had the the underpanted shaved head chorus, but we talked about them being a chorus that had seen things that they didn't want to see. And I think I was really thinking about, I've been very influenced by... Um, Bruno Bettelheim's The Uses of Enchantment about how stories help us through trauma and we really looked into that and one of the things I asked everybody to bring in was a pair of shoes they loved a piece of music they loved to dance to and a memory of something that they wished they hadn't seen um, which we shared or didn't share and I think I suggested we all put them in a box somewhere and hung it over the room I think I was quite spiritual at the time not sure whether we did it, but we were also talking about the um, cowards, in inverted commas, in World War One, who had never been mm. hardened and that had been yeah. shot in the back for their cowardice. Um, of which there was one here in, in Goran. A- Amy Oliver had a, a relative, yeah, and had always questioned why he wasn't on the war, remor- war memorial at Goran Church and found out he was one of those... 15-year-old lads that had gone on sod down, not walking across that field and to, and then being shot by one of his commanding officers. One of his own. Devastating, mm. devastating. So we, we'd, we'd, we were folding in that piece of social history that felt like it had made some sort of sense. There was the shaved heads, which felt like it was a recognition of the Second World War, which is where Bruno Bettelheim's ideas had come from. Um, and yeah. we had Cornish clogs on. And I mean, we threw and we put in our own personal traumas, um, yeah. which we were which we were daring to share. And I look back on that and I think, what a what a raw, heady mix we we brought to that room. And mm. we were a bumpy group as well, weren't we? Yeah, no, that that. Uh, well, I rem- I remember us starting with all with all that and our kind of devising processes and all that marvelous stuff that to an outsider coming into a rehearsal room that's more used to sat around with the script. It's the opposite end of the spectrum of that of of of, of just finding stuff to taste and smell actually, uh, rather rather than think about. Um, I don't mean literally taste and smell, but. Uh, it, it so enriched it and so informed it, but it was a group of NEI actors that some of them have done the Changeling. Becky had worked with this before, but um, it, it was it was an odd mix, and, and I can remember the the structure the structure of the show. I, I I was fairly quiet to start with, wasn't I? But then as as the piece. Um, carried on um, and we needed that character or that character and you've got Luis, Luis Santiago and and John at the time that were playing particular parts and then oh, but we needed a butcher or we needed an airman I, I can remember going anybody anybody after that alright I'll do it I'll do it and I got <laughs> I got busier and busier throughout the show and, it, and by the time we got in those frigging wooden clogs <laughs> you know which yeah not a lot give there so we really were suffering in those wooden clogs as well um and then we'd done the never-ending dance which did feel never-ending and you think ah oh, that's it great nearly at the end and then you decided that there should be a really prolonged 
violent fight between the angel and the girl. <laughs> so I was right on my physical limit, cruising in towards the end of the show. And then, oh no, I had to swing off that structure and have a really desperate, <laughs> violent fight. What was brilliant about that show, I think we talked about it in part one, but it, it you know, we played it in, we played it in Aleppo, we played it in Damascus, we played it in Beirut, we went to to Norway, we went to China, we went we went to all these extraordinary non-English speaking com- countries and it and it spoke brilliantly and resonated brilliantly in, in so many places. I, I'll never forget Beirut where um, we we were stopped early because yeah the um, the 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 powers that be had decided it was subversive. Um, which it wasn't, but it was innately political, I, I guess. Um, but what what a fantastic, powerful piece of work that resonated for people throughout the world. Let's make another one. Oh, yeah, please. But it did, and it went to Syria, didn't it? I think about that so much, yeah. and uh, my heart breaks. I didn't go with you. That wasn't. I was the director at that point, and didn't get to go with you but my heart breaks when I see places on the news and think gosh we we performed there we we met well I, I, there. I, I remember when we arrived there as well and we were met at the air, airport uh, and, and bundled into a van by non-English speaking Syrians and we were taken to a, a Hamas and the next minute we were we were being hosed with high pressure hoses bathed scrubbed with camel hair uh, massaged and then we were outside wrapped in 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 towels drinking coffee and smiling at non-english speaking people underneath the stars it was just magic and then the next day um we all went to this beautiful old amphitheater and we stood in it and all of us started to practice the dances and these children came from everywhere and wanted to learn the dance. So we we taught them dances from the Red Shoes and then they taught us dances. Oh. Um, so that, that kind of thing happens and you think, oh my God, that was such brilliant cultural exchange. And I remember the British Council saying that young Syrians and young Le- Lebanese don't particularly get on. Would you, would you, um, travel with them. So we had, yeah, we had young Syrians and young Lib- Lebanese that travelled and helped host the show and create the event. And then we we worked with them in a, a ruined building in in Beirut. Um, and we we were in a beautiful theatre that was run by a woman who had worked with. Peter Brook back in the day of the of the birds, and you think, oh God, we are so part of this world culture, which was so important coming from Cornwall, and so important to bring bring back to Cornwall. Um, a similar thing happened when we went to Soweto, and we danced and sang in the Shabines there, and Jim Carey at the time learnt these brilliant songs from those people and uh, they went into a show called The Riot um, which we did at the National but 
such an important thing to bring things back from the world and to and to leave things with the with the world as well in in these extraordinary spaces that um yeah so you're not just rucking up and performing it's genuine cultural exchange what happened to that <laughs> i know what happened to so many things um i'm going to talk in a minute about clowning and how how much you've taught me um as a performer and as a director but before that i'm going to just play you a little tiny snippet from the red shoes which was actually your entrance as the vicar who had what you taught me to call a fantastic contra personality and i'm going to say vain and judgmental have you got any better yeah. words for the hymn i think that's very good yeah there he is <laughs> That was that was an entrance, Mike Shepherd. <laughs> okay. Thank you, thank you for giving me that entrance. It's the entrance I've always dreamt of and never never bettered. Yeah, I lip I lip synced to that, didn't I? And I seem to remember having, um, yeah, a, a, a dog collar uh, and a jacket, um, but just my pants, no trousers. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant! What then? You had a polo neck, didn't you? A polo neck, a jacket. Yeah. He was quite dapper. He was a bit Michael Caine. It, That's it. it was like Michael Caine in Get Carter, but with his pants on. Yeah. <laughs> He'd forgotten to put his trousers on. Really <laughs> funny. Really funny. Yeah. And funny because you played him so strong and so serious. Mm. And as you alluded, you ended up playing loads of parts in this show, which is because you're my beautiful Harlequino. You, as in mm. Lady Delarte, you say, I'll do that. Everybody else mm. is thinking, oh, I'll just sit back and see what happens. And meanwhile, Mike Shepard's up a ladder, um, 
doing falling off falling off the, the the top doing all sorts of things throwing yourself into the midst of it and completely immersing yourself in story so i wanted to talk about some of the characters you played and the contra characters because like you say i think i said you hadn't hadn't got a very big part in this i think i thought you were going to play the butcher and the angel i don't know we certainly didn't think you were going to end up playing five parts no. Parts I'm going to start with is what you always do, Mike Shepard, which is that you take a chorus character and you, the, the character that I don't want in the show, I'm not interested in, I don't need, just needs to serve a simple storytelling purpose. And you can take this character that doesn't exist, name them and inflate them until it's one of the characters people go away thinking most about. We talked about your character in Cymbeline, Potsy. <laughs> Yeah. Again, you name them yourself. You know, I have no control about this. And yeah. the character that I want to talk about is Justine in Red Shoes. <laughs> Tell me about Justine. Well, Justine, yeah. I, I mean, it's important as well to go into a rehearsal space and not know what you're doing. So I, I, I will say that. So you, you, you have a look at what's emerging and, and, and that I'll, I'll say the taste and the smell of the world again and, and how you can possibly serve that and, and Justine I mean no one I don't think anyone ever ever knew that she was called Justine and then you're looking at this middle-aged craggy bloke uh, but and that's where I'll give myself a contrast so for me I was a beautiful young girl who and not only was I a beautiful young girl but I was I was a bit nasty as well <laughs> so you've got beautiful young girl that's a bit it's a bit nasty. So those the two contras are good to, to start to start with. Um, she was so, one of those girls uh, who pinched, wasn't she? She was a pinched. Yeah. She wasn't outwardly yeah. nasty. She would do yeah. secret cruel things. Uh, and and it's amazing what else that that will give the the character. Um, it's great you mentioned Arlequino because I think I, I I do think Arlequino is brilliant, and I think. Eight-year-old boys are the most incredible Arlequinos. I, I, I was a primary school teacher, and in in particular, the boys were. So you go to the PE shed. Uh, no, you don't. You wouldn't go to the PE shed. You say to um, Martin and Philip, "I'd like you to go to the PE shed." They gone, absolutely gone. And then you'd wait, and about five minutes later, they'd come back and you say, "I like to get out two footballs and three hoops." <laughs> <laughs> but it's that it's that notion of, "Yeah, I can do it." Right? I want you to go to the PE shed. No questioning, just do it. Which is like a, a director's dream, isn't it? It is. It really is. I'd like, I don't know why, but I'd like you to go to the pit. Boom! If you're there, see what you can find. You know. Um, so I think Arlequino kind of informs things uh, it, there's a quote I sent you recently which Jack Lecoque which is talking about Commedia dell'arte and it's the sort of essentials of life isn't it we're, we're, we're all trying to eat we're all trying to procreate and we're all trying desperately to avoid death which feels um, that's the business of making theatre and the, certainly the business of life at the moment um, the other the other contra just to explain that more is you mentioned the butcher who of course in the story was the executioner and she goes to the executioner and gets him to chop her feet off because she can't stop dancing 
And I don't know why we came up with The Butcher, but I do know we were rehearsing in Goran Haven and there was Les Bullen, who is a loveliest man. Oh, my, lovely to see you. Gentle, Cornish voice, uh, lighter tones, and he'd be chopping up meat and pulling the guts out of things. Oh, it's a lovely day. I think, yeah. So he would talk like that. So I thought, well, I'm going to model The Butcher on the red shoes, (laughs) on... um, uh, in the red shoes on, on Les Bullen, so he did. He took. He talked about that, and she, she came to him, and she was mute. Um, the girl, she never spoke, um, which is always a very powerful thing. Um, but he realizes that she's in distress. Oh, how can I help? She's in distress. So he does this b- terrible, brutal thing, but in the kindest, most um, gentlest manner that he can, and that, and that gives you the kind of it certainly gives you the comedy as well of, uh, of of opposites, I suppose. Yeah. Does that explain it? The kind executioner. And I have yeah. Steen down as the classic victim bully. Yes. Um, and yeah. that's where that's where Mike's taught me that, you know, that if you play one thing, it's too, it's too simple. If you put something really surprising in a character. Um, so if you were playing a beautiful princess, that you might have a greedy princess who's constantly scrabbling for a bun or... Um, or yeah. like you say, sort of that that nastiness that Justine had. And then we had your feigned judgmental vicar. And then we had the angel as well, who was terrifying, who was like the rescuer, but was vicious, yeah. the vicious rescuer. And yeah. I think you're the absolute master of that. And you, mm. um, with very few words, although you always use language textually and you're a great improviser vocally, you're, you're amazing at how you make these strong choices that fizz against each other, that react like mercury on water. And these strange uh, new archetypes are birthed and, and they're intoxicating. And, and it's amazing to think of your clown doing four or five amazingly strong, detailed new archetypes in, in this show, in this seemingly small show. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's brilliant. No, the master, as we often call you. I'm often called Miss Rice at knee high. <laughs> and you're often called the master, and everybody should know that the everybody's mm. tongues are firmly in their cheeks when they say yeah. it. But I'm going to say it without my tongue being in my cheek. Mm. Um, it's worth mentioning as well that we did, as well as the First World War, the Second World War, the Cornish clog dancing, the Lindy hopping, um, the personal. Um, stories. We also had a transvestite storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> Just in case I hadn't thrown enough ideas at this tiny yeah. um, folk story. Um, so yes, the story was told by Lady Lydia, played by Giles King. And we never went into that really, but we're really looking at people in the wrong, what it is to be in the wrong body or in the wrong life and what the compulsion is. And at the end, Mm. the big reveal was that Lady Lydia took off this beautiful finery and was indeed like everybody else with a shaved head. And Mm. um, the the vulnerability of Giles in his vest and pants, who seemed so huge as this wonderful, abundant woman becoming this tiny man who had seen things that he didn't want to see. And... Again, we didn't really. I didn't. I don't feel I ever answered all the questions that I set. I think I'd answer more questions now. I think I'd cut some ideas, but they hung in the air in a way that, as you said, went a- 
crossed boundaries and crossed continents and seemed to speak really powerfully to people for decades about personal and political freedom. But I think it's really important to not answer all the questions. Um, I'm in a funny little film club at the moment with Carl Groves, Paul Hunter, Martin Heider, the actor, and Michael Vale, the brilliant designer. And we watched, the last film we watched was called Poetry, about a 60-year-old woman looking after her grandson, and she's got uh, dementia is, is beginning. Uh, I, I, uh, and, it, and, it's, and it's curious, it leaves all, all these kind of spaces, and then the ending is so brilliant. It stayed with me for days and days, because... Um, to use the word ingredients, all the ingredients were there, all the all the parts of the story, but she didn't, she didn't tie it all up. We had to kind of decide. And I sort of went online afterwards and there was whole loads of stuff about what does the ending of poetry mean and what was this and what was, and you want to go, oh, that's certainly why we do theatre is to try and get an audience to do a bit of work and make up their mind. But I, I love it when things resonate in that way. Of course, structurally, you come to an end. But don't tie it all up. That's smug. <laughs> Which I'm certainly not smug at the moment. I don't know about you. Any smugness is for No, I'm, 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 I'm not smug. In fact, my mental health, I'll tell you about one dream and not the other. My, one dream I've had this this week um, was for some reason I was given a job brilliant um, I was backstage at the National Theatre but I was put in control of uh, a troop of miniature ponies so I'm not sure what kind of shows they're, <laughs> they're doing at the National but I was in, in charge of the miniature ponies that I couldn't control at all they just went everywhere I was just hopeless at this job and I started to weep inconsolably and uncontrollably to such an extent that I was ex escorted out of the building and put into an ambulance. So that's fairly that's fairly clear what my mental health's like. Oh dear. Well, anyway, let's not go, but the, the ambulance has come up that road to the Goran Barnes to... to and taken me away. Yeah, so we've, I've been in that situation a few times. Um, I can't leave the subject of the red shoes without talking about the element of danger. Um, well, first of all, um, you don't have a great sense of danger. You think that we should be pushing the boundaries on stage and there's been many a uh, fizzy moment in rehearsals when other people haven't felt safe. And one of the ones in the red shoes was you... Um, Beck Appleby, we used to be knelt down at the end of her, at the end of this show, sort of absolutely desperate as the girl, and would be knelt facing away from you. And you wanted to throw a real dart from a very high place with a um, rose on it that would fall in front of her. And you kept saying, I can do it, I'm really good. And you are really good, and you always did do it. But she quite understandably said, I don't feel great about a spear being thrown at my neck and I can't turn round to avoid it. And you kept saying, oh, you're being fussy. Why won't you let me do it? And I think I had to intervene at some point and go, actually, I think Beck has got a point that if you are throwing a, uh, <laughs> a weapon at somebody's neck without yes. them having the chance to duck, that's prob they've probably got no, it. Uh, miles away. But do you remember, um, I, I listened to the tea and biscuits with the wonderful Vicky Mortimer and, and you're talking about Geasley who played Don John but 
I, I was his sidekick. I don't know whether you were in that night. We were at I the Royal Shakespeare was. Company, and he used to play darts, and I was trying to tell him something. So I then, my my offer um, was was to get in the way, stand between him and the dartboard, and trust him to throw the darts beyond me. And then that one particular night, he threw it, and it stuck in my forehead. <laughs> and stayed there with a trickle of blood. It stayed there. And um, Beasley came completely out of character, go, oh, I'm sorry. And, it got, and I, in front of an audience said, you've just thrown a dart and you've stuck it in my head. And we played the moment with a slightly traumatized but hilariously laughing audience as well. So yes, dart in the head, that's fine. Yeah, just could have gone into a spinal cord. It could have been fine. But there was one genuine accident which I want to tell the story of. So we took the red shoes to Edinburgh. Now, Edinburgh never really suited knee-high. I'm going to speak personally. Edinburgh doesn't really suit me because the fast turnaround of work and the way that people consume work is really painful. I found it really painful. You know, literally the streets are littered with... Um, with leaflets for shows and that's what it felt like it's like these there was so much being consumed and where's the care but we did it and we had a slot and this show used to go up in how many hours I don't know let's say three hours and we used to, and they used to say we're going to turn it around put your setup in 20 minutes and we I can remember saying we you can't do it and they said we can we're a crack team and indeed they'd hang sets all the different sets in the in the theater would be hung up into the grid stored to the back and then this big team of blokes would come in you'd have 20 minutes they put up your set you'd do the show 20 minutes they'd take it down like a a machine um and and it was very destabilizing but anyway it happened we did it um and there was a few times when something would fall out of the rig so a a, a bit of set by somebody else from somebody else's show would just fall onto the stage so there was an element of danger around it but we kept going and then one night it was a long but it wasn't night it was the afternoon we'd gone a long way through the show which was um a fantastic bill mitchell set with a high platform with a spiral staircase coming off one side and a straight ladder coming off the other and you went up the ladder which had been gone up and down many times before in that very show and you got right to the top and it slipped away and you fell from the top of the ladder to the floor feet first so you landed on your feet sheer drop and the audience gasped I gasped and I leapt to my feet and you were crumpled on the floor all the actors ran to you um, stopped the show and ran to you and you and you I think you looked up and you went fuck off and get on with the show that's what I remember <laughs> I was in total shock didn't know what to do um, I was I was up and down thinking do I stop the show the actors were in shock Beck Appleby then went into a dance which was the girl in the red shoes dancing out of control and you like some Bambi some bald Bambi got onto your feet obviously sort of dazed with blood <laughs> rolling down your legs I don't know how it happened and started joining in and the audience were traumatised the actors were traumatised um, and I think your next entrance was a you you managed to dance and then you went off and you came back on as the vicar doing a similar entrance that we described with blood still going down your legs and you said don't worry I'm alright and the audience laughed um, but it wasn't funny and it was that the crew had not tied that ladder off and you and I walked the streets of Edinburgh trying to find a doctor that night. 
while everybody else drank. Um, but it felt like a classic Mike Shepard moment. I feel I've watched you spend your nine lives many times, and that was one of them. It was a shocking moment. It was, it was, wasn't it? We did the classic at the end. Is there a doctor in the house? And 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 there were two that came back and offered various various ridiculous solutions. But wasn't one a doctor? But yeah. I mean, I, I, mean I, I I do accept the cat with nine lives, but the point is. Without that Edinburgh crew, it was always me who checked that ladder that it was tied off. So um, I, I, I accept I, there have been a few situations where I could have been unlucky, but I, I am safety conscious as well. Uh, and that's, I remember learning that um, having fallen down a cliff when I was a kid, thinking, ah, yes, danger. Um, near near death here um so I, I i do want to be brave and i do want the work to be physical um and you know we we often say don't we in fact i think it, it, it was you who said it first um to, to to actors um just to let you know uh we're all frightened but fear is not actually that much use to you and and i and i've certainly found in sort of physical situations where you're being asked to do things um i learned this off johnny hutch actually remember johnny hutch yeah. did you ever know johnny hutch yeah uh, yeah um, vaudeville you know, guy yeah vaudeville guy acrobat who came into physical work with us and he he stopped he let us know that if you're fearful you're much more likely to hurt yourself so, you did yeah. hurt yourself that day. It wasn't your fault, but I'm haunted no. by it. Haunted by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still hobble, actually. <laughs> well, I know. I think there was some lasting damage from that fall. Yeah. Um, I think what we've established in this Team Biscuits is we need to do another one because I'm not going to start Tristan Isolt now. We're going to do a third. Cool, blimey. It's ongoing, isn't it? It is. This is it. it is. This is this important stuff and it's really exciting. Yeah. And what a show. I feel that the red shoes defined me not only as a director, but as an artist and as a woman, because I think it was when I owned the fact that I was a director. It was the first time I hadn't been in a show I directed. Mm. And owned my story as one that I could share and manipulate and and draw on. And I remain eternally grateful to the people in the room who made that show with me so if you're listening out there cast of the red shoes all the different casts thank you for everything you brought and thank you to Stu barker who put together the amazing soundtrack and the original music it feels like the soundtrack of my soul in many ways and we all danced on it with lindy hop and cornish clogs yeah how brilliant and um and, and how brilliant to be in a show that was truly daring uh and fantastic to be on a stage where um, there, there's an audience that, you know, I, I mean, it's to make work, I've, I've always believed if, you, if you're going to make work and hope that everyone likes it, um, it'll be mediocre in some way. <laughs> and The Red Shoes was stellar. Um, and I don't care who liked it and who didn't. And that's a, a, a really good, place to be as a performer I think rather than having a fragile ego hoping everyone likes it that's no good oh no we loved this show with a passion didn't we every every yeah. night we 
yeah. danced and fought the hell out of it. Which is why yeah. I'm going to play us out on the amazing fight at the end, which is the brutal rescuer, the vicious rescuer angel, when he fought the girl with the red shoes, trying to take her to heaven. And she said, no, I'm going to live. Her feet had been chopped off. She'd lost almost everything, but she hadn't lost herself. And she marched into her future at the end of this. Changed physically and emotionally, but still alive. So here's to us, Mike. If you have a memory or connection you'd like to share on Tea and Biscuits, leave us a message on our phone line 0117 318 3846. That's 0117 318 3846. Keep checking our social media for details of our next show. Tea and Biscuits is part of Wise Children's Lockdown. Thanks for hanging out with us. Bye. <laughs>